Well, good morning, church. It's a joy to see your faces. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks especially to our online guests. Glad to have you with us as well. Uh, before I get started, I have one really important announcement to make, and that's that today is a special birthday in the life of our church. Our very own Dave Sattler has crossed one more year on this planet. It's exciting. He's also this past week inherited a new title. He's now from this time forward, Grandpa Dave. So we are glad to have you, Dave. I'm glad that you made it one more year around the sun. Congratulations. Um, it's wonderful to be with you. It's a joy to be here. Uh, today is a Comedian Sunday. The preteens get to stay with us, so enjoy being in the room. Um, those of you who are here, and you can doodle. Uh, the notes are there for you to take. It's the sovereign will of God that I shut up. Um, I don't know. It's back. So uh, if, then if, I, if I cut out, you know it's God's will. That's what we'll go with today anyway. Um, you were preteen. You've got the notes. Uh, you can doodle on them. There are pens and paper and play around. That's all right. And uh, just if you draw something cool, I only ask you show it to me later. I, I think that's fun stuff. Uh, we are continuing in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we've covered so far Jeremiah's life in overview. Uh, we reviewed the Old Testament, what the value of the Old Testament is for us in worship. Uh, I talked last week about Jeremiah's life and call. And there's one kind of final point of introduction, and that's to talk about Jeremiah as a prophet, or how we read and receive and listen to prophecy today. And I just remind you, the book of Jeremiah is one of the greater prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are huge names filling a huge portion of our Bibles. And so these play a significant role in our understanding of this world. And Jeremiah fulfills quite a specific role in Israel's history. But when we talk about prophecy, sometimes um, we get lots of ideas that may or may not be Christian or even biblical when we talk about prophecy. So one of the ideas we have is that all prophecy is prediction. If you're a prophet, you are predicting the future. And I don't think that's the right idea. Um, the idea that all prophecy is about things coming in the future. I don't think that's the case either. I don't think we see that in the Bible. Very often prophecy is about right now. Um, sometimes you'll meet people who think that all prophecy has been fulfilled. And the Old Testament doesn't matter very much anymore because everything in it happened. So we don't need to read it. Um, or even more so the idea that we study prophecy to get to like the apocalyptic end times, right? We want to decode the newspaper by means of like, you had like a decoder ring of the Old Testament and you lay it on top of the newspaper and you can figure out which things are where. And uh, that's one of the things we think of too. And I think today's passage may set us straight on a few of these things. That's my hope. Uh, it gives us some tools for both how to read and to respond to prophecy in the Bible. So I'm gonna read Jeremiah chapter 18, a passage about the potter and the clay. Um, after I've read, I'm gonna talk about the role of the prophet a little more. I'm going to talk about the content of this specific prophecy, uh, what happens with opposition, and then we'll bring these things to bear on our modern world. Okay? So the words will be on the screen behind me, but I'm going to read from my paper Bible. This is Jeremiah chapter 18. Here we go. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. 
But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring to it. Or, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way, and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, It's hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, who ever heard of the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country, or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods, and they have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths to walk in bypaths, not on a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Then they said, the people said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come on and let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. Do give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf so as to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, give their children over to famine. And deliver them up to the power of the sword. And let their wives become childless and widow. Let their men also be smitten to death, their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders upon them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and hidden snares from my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight. But may, may they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. This is our word for today. Okay. Jeremiah, as we pointed out, prophet, 7th century before Christ, travels throughout Judea. He's part of a renewal ministry during the time of Josiah, good King Josiah's renewal. He preaches the renewal. People don't like it. And they oppose him, and they try to, they try to kill him and try to, um, try to get rid of Jeremiah because of the message. Um, later, after Josiah's death, he preaches the imminent doom of national Israel. If she failed to repent, people don't listen, the stuff comes true. Now, in this career, uh, Jeremiah is fulfilling what is an expected office, the office of prophet. And people have expectations about what a prophet should be doing. And it was so common that people knew what to expect from prophets at the time. They had a set of ideas. Today, prophet's not so common. <laughs> we don't have... People wandering around the British Columbia wilderness shouting God's word to cities. That's something we don't look for or expect in quite the same way. And I've tried to distill down the prophetic office into kind of four features. These are my thoughts, uh, so there's nothing 
uh, nothing particularly sacred, but I think this kind of captures the four things um, that happen. So here's four of them. So the biblical prophet is first an agent of God. Biblical prophet is an agent of God. He's someone who performs, um, performs signs of God's local will. A person set to a specific place for a specific set of circumstances. Maybe the best kind of corollary images is that the prophet is like God's lawyer, sent to serve papers on God's behalf to people. He's a stand-in. He's doing a, a kind of administrative social work on part of God's behalf. Okay? Uh, second thing the biblical prophet is, is a, I'll call it a point of access to God. If you lost your sheep and want to find them, am I gone again? That God's will is for me, remember. If you're trying to decide whether or not to invade Moab this week, you should find a prophet and ask him, right? If you want to know if it's going to rain, you should find a prophet. It's an agent, as someone who's going to give you access to God. And one of the things that's important to remember is that in the ancient world, every decision was spiritual as well as material. We have a kind of a hard separation between these things, but the ancient thinking, there was always spiritual material moving side by side. Spiritual consultation for humdrum decisions is the most natural thing that you could do in the ancient world. Actually, in many parts of the modern world, this is still the case. Um, um, if you've heard of feng shui, the whole idea of geomancy is that there is a kind of spiritual reality to your home, and so you hire a Taoist geomancer who shows up and helps you determine the water and airflow of your house is appropriate. It's a spiritual impact on your material decisions, and these things uh, run together. So uh, there's still some ideas of this in today. The third thing a prophet does is a conduit of God's spirit. So both of the above ministry things, the agency and the access point, function because God's spirit is present upon the prophet, often tied to powerful and unique signs. Jeremiah is not a sign prophet in the way that, say, Elijah and Elisha were sign prophets. They spoke God's word and then did things. There were mighty deeds attached to them. And the performance of signs were validations that God's power was present in them. Um, what's interesting is, it seems to me, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit seems to rest on, like, one person at a time. Uh, there's a pretty clear transition, especially between Elijah and Elisha, of the Spirit moving from that prophet to the next prophet, with the Spirit resting on David and then leaving, um, uh, resting on Saul and then leaving Saul for David. Like, there's a kind of a one-at-a-time thing. And what's interesting is the change in the New Testament is the Spirit seems to be diffused among all believers. There's been a change in how the Spirit relates to God's people. And that, I think, changes prophecy, but we'll come back to that. So after the conduit, the fourth thing, he is, is a herald. Remember, um, ancient world messengers, you didn't have email, and you didn't have the post. You'd sent a guy, or a girl, I suppose, mostly a guy, sent him with a message. This is why we have those Bible verses, how blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. Someone showing up with a message. Some of you know the story of uh, Pheidippides. Do you guys remember his name? No? Nobody remembers? He ran the first marathon, Right? He runs 26.2 miles, sorry, 40 kilometers, uh, 42 kilometers, um, uh, to announce victory at the battle. And you know what happened after he announced Nikkei victory? He died, which uh, changes, why do we, anyway, it'd be a very interesting marathon today, okay? Uh, so in the context of empires, though, remember empires are in the background, Assyria, Babylon, the idea of messengers take on import, because, of course, now the messenger represents the king. There's imperial messages being brought forward. And if you harm the king's messenger, you've done something to the king as well. And so the prophet, as, the, as God's messenger, is taking on, if you're hurting Jeremiah, who are you really threatening here? Uh, so there's some danger involved. 
So uh, these are the ideas, and there are other offices in the ancient world. Uh, the, the, the prophet was an office, but the priest was another office, and they're not the same. The priest makes intercession for people. The priest works on ritual purity. Um, and it strikes me as interesting, it seems like a lot of the priests in the Bible aren't expecting to hear from God in the way the prophets are. Um, there's something funny. Uh, Reform, Reformation theologian and pastor John Calvin saw three offices, key offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And what he thought was especially interesting about these is that Jesus fulfills all three offices in a way that no one else does. Jesus fulfills the prophetic office and the priestly office and the kingship. Uh, and this is a transformation, a change in the arrival of King Jesus. All that to say, in approaching Jeremiah as a prophet, we are encountering the, encountering the agent of God, God's lawyer serving papers. He's an access point to God. He's giving us information about God. He's a conduit of God's spirit. He's revealing God's uh, power to us, and he is a herald of God's kingdom. And this means in some ways that Jeremiah has a great deal of authority. There's a lot of authority invested in him as an individual. So let's turn then to the potter and the clay and prophecy itself. I'm going to look again at the specific prophecy of Jeremiah 18. I'm just going to reread verses 1 through 10 for you. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. And I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. And pause for a second and say, this is a very ordinary and kind of humdrum experience. Uh, pottery was necessary. It's how you carried water and, and cooked things. And it's all, all of your materials are done from, there's tons of pottery. In archaeological world, they found tons of it everywhere. You can find out by, you can work out trade routes based on where pottery ends up in different places. And you can find out what they used. If they broke a pot, they'd use it for writing paper. And so they'd find writing on old pots. And it's a pretty fascinating study how people work with these things. It's actually quite amazing. And so this is a totally humdrum and ordinary place. Go down to the potter's house. Okay, great. I'll go and I'll check it out. And he's going to sit and watch the potter working on his wheel. The potter's wheel is such an old tool. You, know, you can spin this clay and uh, mold it with your hands. And we've learned things about force and centripetal force. And it's quite lovely. Anyway, we go on. Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to uproot or pull down or destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, for many years, my understanding of prophecy was really drawn from these first four verses about the potter, the clay, and the discarded pot. And taken on their own, and in light of certain New Testament passages, they could be interpreted as a declaration of God's sovereignty. Some of you, God has chosen to be useful pots. Some of you, I'm sorry, are discovering you are not useful pots. And these things have been determined ahead of time, and there's very little you can do about it. Oops. I'm grateful that I'm one of the good pots who can do, right? And that you, it's only you, there's really funny things that happen. And I've, I learned this passage, probably under the influence of New Testament passages, that this is about God's sovereign hand in determining who is and who is not part of it. And so um, 
in light of that, prophecy comes to be Jeremiah and the other prophets announcing what God intends to do full stop. Right? God's declaring what he's going to do. Some of you vessels for glory, others vessels for destruction. Nothing can change it, but God promises it's true. Uh, but if we read on, I think we see a few interesting things. And especially uh, what we see in verses 8 and verses 10. Uh, verse 8 will be highlighted on the screen for you here. If that nation against which I have spoken turns. I'm going to speak my word, but if they turn, I'll change. Okay? And if it does evil, I've made a good promise, verse 10, but if it does evil by not obeying, I will punish. And we come to see that, that the importance is not declaring God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. I don't mean he's not sovereign. It's not about declaring God's sovereignty. It's that God's word is trying to do something, and he wants you to be like soft clay in response to it. The importance is not declaring information. The importance is what the information does to you and me. That's what needs to happen in prophecy. All right, so prophets speak because God wants change. That's why prophets announce God's word. They speak, God wants change. Change in you and me. And so the change is pretty common. Return to the covenant of prophets. Come back to me. Be my people again. Of Yahweh. Return to him. Reject the compromise with the world, the world's ideas and customs of other gods. Uh, to put this another way, all prophecy is an opportunity for repentance. Every prophetic word you hear is a fresh opportunity to repent. God speaks eternally true words about his characters and intentions. His character doesn't change. Our circumstances change. And that spoken word of God's character into our time and space is this invitation to change. Don't be confused by the word repentance, because repentance just means a turn towards godliness. It just means a turn. Turn more towards godliness. Um, and we can hear this in a couple ways. We could be invited into repentance, or we could be rebuked into repentance, right? And we need both words. Nobody here is so good and so upright in the Christian life that you can't be more like God. Nobody here has got it so sorted out. You can't have more steps towards God. And you know what that step is? It's a repentance. It's turning more towards God. It doesn't mean you're bad. It just means you could be better. Uh, unfortunately, most of us fall beneath that standard. And we still need the hard rebuke, don't we? Myself included. And we need to hear God's word saying you can't do that. We need the reminding. We're wayward. We turn from God. We're fickle. We don't stay constant, these things. I'll give you a personal example. I used to love building Lego. I suppose I still do, but I don't have any space for it, so I don't buy them to keep them. Um, and I, I, I would build, and you know, if you've ever built Lego, you know you've got those pictures, and the pictures show you, like, what happens next. They don't tell you what to do. You just have to pay attention, right? You have to learn and see. And uh, often I'd get, to, I'd get to, like, page, I don't know, instruction 20 and realize I'd missed something because things weren't adding together. So now I have to go back page by page by page and find what's the piece I missed. Repentance is like that. Where did I go wrong? How do I go back and make it right again? Because I can't go forward until I fix the problem. Okay? I like to say that I, I don't commit these errors anymore. I still do all the time. We buy, we buy furniture, shows up at our house. I like building it. I've got a little mental focus time. And nine times out of ten, I get, to some, I get to instruction page 15, and I've done something wrong. 
It's upside down, it's backwards. I'd like to tell you that I'm charitable and nice in these moments. I'm not, I'm grumpy and angry. But painstakingly, I go back and unscrew and remove so that I can get it right. And that's hopefully an image of repentance. I have to fix it. I want the end to be right. I want things to be right more than I want myself to be right. Okay? And so we have to repent in the same way. We turn more towards God. Right? Jeremiah speaks then the message of the potter and the clay, which is not a statement of God's sovereignty, although God is perfectly sovereign, but a statement of how he wants us to hear and respond to the word of God like soft clay. When he speaks correction to you, respond. Affirms something in your life, respond like soft clay. Be shaped by God. So has God promised good to you? Submit to the shaping power of God to receive that goodness. Has God rebuked you? Submit to the rebuke of God to receive his goodness. And the message of the potter and the clay is that if you hear God's word, and if you keep going about your merry business in rejection of it, then you'll receive judgment. That's what happens. So I talked at the beginning about some common ideas of prophecy, that it's all prediction, all about the future, that everything in the Old Testament has been fulfilled, that the real study of prophecy is a study of apocalyptic end times. But I hope you can see that from Jeremiah 18, this isn't the case. Prophecy wants change, not prediction. And prophecy is about how you will respond now, not about delaying it to the future. See, we can delay to the future to uh, put away obedience in the moment, can't we? It's about the future. I don't have to do anything now. And it's the opportunity to repent, and this is fulfilled again and again and again and again. There's always need for us to repent. And so God, as judge of the world, prophecy speaks today rather than to uh, some idea of the future, some idea of our end times. So the second half of the passage, of course, documents this opposition that Jeremiah experiences, even to this prophecy. Um, And Jeremiah regularly found himself opposed by the people. I'll just read verse 18 for you right now. Then they said, the people he spoke to, Come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come on and let us strike at him with our tongue, and let us give no heed to any of his words. Uh, last week I talked about how Jeremiah was frequently opposed. And he's thrown, he's thrown into wells and he's thrown in prison and people don't like him for the words that he's speaking. And this is of a piece. This passage here is of a piece with all of that. But opposition to Jeremiah isn't something special about Jeremiah. We have to recognize this. God's revealed word is always at odds with the world. God's revealed word is always at odds with the world. It's at odds with our desire to be left alone, at odds with our desire for pleasures apart from God's will and outside of his will, at odds with our sense of self-worth and self-confidence. No, I've got it all sorted. I don't need someone else telling me what to do. We want to be self-sufficient. At odds with the local church because none of us has it so together that we can't be corrected by God, right? Even we need that rebuke. I think this is why the Lord's Prayer is so dangerous. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy will be done. If that happens, everything changes, doesn't it? We get rattled and unsettled. That's a a foundation-shaking prayer. It's not just nice words. Um, My favorite illustration of this is to remember that God's word is perfectly straight, and the rest of our world is crooked. 
as if God's word is a plumb line that exposes his heavenly reality to us and we discover the scoliosis of our lives in response to that. That's not my image, it's somebody else's I've borrowed. In view of God's perfection, we discover the twistedness of our own lives. Oh, and it's painful to be straightened according to that. It's always at odds. You'd think, given how difficult it is that God might give up, but he never does. Isn't it amazing that God never gives up on this? Remember with uh, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? God knew the city was wretched, but Abraham bargains with him. He's like, hey, if there's 50, how about if there's 45? How about there's 40? It's all the way down to 10. If you can find 10 righteous men, and God says, if I can find 10, I'll spare the city. His hope is, is his bar is set so low. It's remarkable. There's always space for us to get, get by. Even when Israel is committed to its course of rampant idolatry and destruction, he sends his prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. You run all the way through the line of prophets. They've been sent because there's hope, because God doesn't give up on the sins. Always a chance for repentance and return. And so what I want to say is that prophecy is more concerned, I believe, with the declaration of God's truth and God's goodness than it is with judgment itself. Or rather, when prophets talk about judgment, they do it in light of the fact that God's goodness is being revealed. There's something inevitable happening. We must respond because God is good and worth it. Well, let's bring this to prophecy in us and to our world for a minute. And I want to talk about maybe four ways that we can hear and receive prophecy today. These will be fairly brief. Uh, the first thing to say is that God is still speaking. God is still speaking today. Uh, he hasn't changed. His character hasn't changed. His Holy Spirit hasn't changed. He still hasn't given up. He's still speaking. He's speaking through the word. We can read his prophets here. Oh, he didn't want me to say that out loud. Okay. No, um, he's speaking through his spirit to God's people today. He is communicating to us his will daily. It's the same God speaking today as spoke through Jeremiah. Therefore, the whole word is valid for us. Remember that. Okay? Second thing, I believe this. The prophetic office now falls upon the church. The prophetic office now falls upon the church. This may be controversial. Where the Old Testament descends, the Spirit descends on one prophet at a time. I think at Pentecost, the Spirit, I don't think, I know, at Pentecost, the Spirit descended upon the whole church. And I think this means that the prophetic office is now shared by a community. If you want to find out God's will, you don't go to some sacred individual. You need to be in church. If you want to know what God's going to do in your life, this is the place to do it, among the people of God. If you're lost and want, some, want access to God, this is the place to do it. It's not some sacred, solitary journey out in the wilderness to find God. He can be found in the gathered, gathered body of his people. Because the Spirit's present and the Spirit of prophecy is present in this place. So, love the church. Okay. In this prophetic ministry, I want to be clear, I'm not a prophet. That's not my role. Every once in a while, you get to these, these really popular preachers who have prophetic ministries. Have you heard about these guys? Right? And they're predicting things like the end of the world and earthquakes. And they're talking about, they're doing calculations about things. Don't listen to them. It's not their business. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. I think the prophetic office now falls on the church. Third thing, we must actively seek a posture of soft clay before God's re revealed words. Now that's the key message of the potter and the clay, isn't it? Uh, repent early and repent often. Okay, <laughs> I'm, 
I'm from outside Chicago, and uh, my state, Illinois, is notorious for its um, corruption. And one of the mottos of our state is vote early and vote often. Um, and that highlights the corruption of the place. And yet, for us, it's repent early and repent often. Right? Just keep repenting. Don't get tired of it. Flex that muscle. Be good at it. Be committed to making it right. Oops. Let's fix it. That's the spirit of repentance. And that's the softness of clay. Always respond to every opportunity presented by God's word, whether it's the invitation into more life with God or the rebuke of something that's not right. And God speaks both. He builds up any stone. Fourth and finally, we need to recognize that God's truth creates both life and opposition. God's truth creates life and opposition. That's what happens with Jeremiah. There's good news and hard news. God builds up and he tears down. And faithfulness will be unpopular, but it will also be life-giving. So kind of in conclusion, what I want to say is this. I think the church has one prophetic message to preach today. Just one. And it is not that there are earthquakes and natural disasters pointing towards the imminent end of the world. Identified the Antichrist. We know who he is, and we're going to talk about him now. It is not that we know the hour of Christ's return, because Jesus told us that we would not. And it is not that an individual prophet like me, if it's, it's I should be followed. That's not, it's not that one person should be followed because they've got special access to God that none of you have. That's not it. Instead, our message, the one that keeps us in alignment with all the prophets, our prophetic message to the world is the gospel. That Jesus Christ came, that he died on a Roman cross, that he rose to life on the third day, and that he is now the risen king of all. This is good news and bad news, isn't it? Right? If we respond to it as good news, we get life. If we harden ourselves against it, there's doom. That's the prophetic message of the church. That's what we are tasked to preach and not get sidetracked by these other things. We've got to stay focused on that. Okay? It's a prophetic message that provides every hearer with an opportunity for repentance. And so, will we be like soft clay and respond to that message? Uh, we get to shift now into a time of communion together as a church. I'm going to invite our musicians to come and take their place and invite our servers to begin to come and take their places as well. Let's say a couple words about our, this meal and what this means for us for a moment. Uh, Jeremiah is taken to, he says, go to the potter's house and take a look at it. And while you're there, you'll receive a word. And maybe in that spirit, I want to invite you today to look at the bread and the juice we have and hear from the Lord. Because our Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. I don't know that they had any idea what he meant. And I don't know that sometimes we have any idea what he meant, but there's an invitation to respond to Jesus in this, and I invite you to respond to Jesus. He said, take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is now the blood of the covenant, 
the blood of my covenant. Whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Again, I had no idea. I don't know that they understood what he meant by that. What a strange way to communicate something so powerful to his disciples. And yet we receive that now. A lot of our faith is ephemeral. Things we think, things we hear, but this is tactile. And so in a minute, you're invited to come forward uh, to, one of the, uh, to one of the servers. And what they'll do is they're going to tear off a piece, and they're going to give you a piece of the bread and say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And he did. He gave his life for you. And in your hand, you'll have some little tiny tangible piece of knowing that Jesus did something for me. You can take that, and you can then dip it in the cup, uh, the bread, not your fingers, please. Bread, not fingers, okay? Dip it in the cup, okay? And the person with the cup will say, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And as you eat it, remember that, that Jesus has done something profound for each of us, that he's the risen king, and that we love and serve him for that. If um, we have some, I will set these to the side here, and we'll keep them at the center. Uh, we have some gluten, um, we have some we have members with <laughs> health concerns that we honor, and uh, we have some, thank you, thank you, that's the word, all right? Um, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, your word is perfect and pure and secure, and we thank you for it. Um, speak to us now through these elements of bread and juice. Um, as food transforms into energy and health in our lives, cause this symbol of food to be transformed into something profound in our lives. I pray for those today who are already soft to your word, Lord, that you would shape more. And then I pray, Lord, for those who are wondering if they have the courage to be soft to you, Lord. And would you strengthen them to take the risk? Way. Bless this meal for these, your people, today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.